Let me begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time as we gather to sit under your preached word. God, open our eyes to behold wondrous things as, as we study the scripture. Give us ears to hear. Help me as your servant as to rightly handle the word. And pray that we leave here better worshipers of you in light of, of what we hear, that we apply it to our lives. And in all of it, we pray that you'd be glorified. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, both Ben and Rod are, are out of town as, as you know, Ben uh, completed his, his degree and uh, doctorate of ministry up at Southern Seminary, so he was up there for graduation Friday, and Rod was able to go as well. So, so Charlie and I are holding down the fort today. Um, Charlie will be leading the prayer meeting tonight, and this morning I'll be preaching from Second John, and, and the plan will be to, to finish that letter next Sunday. So kind of a neat opportunity to look to one of the shorter epistles in the scriptures and be able to, to work through the entire book over the course of just a few weeks. So as we begin, I just wanted to point out something I heard recently. I was, I was watching a documentary. It was on the life of Benjamin Franklin, and I was just struck uh, in, a, in a difficult way. I was struck by some correspondence that took place between uh, Franklin and his father, Benjamin Franklin, and his parents. He, he wrote this, Honored father and mother, I imagine a man must have a good deal of vanity who believes that all the doctrines that he holds are true and all he rejects are false. I think vital religion has always suffered when orthodoxy is more regarded than virtue. And the scripture assures me that at the last day, we shall not be examined by what we thought, but by what we did. It's interesting to think about Benjamin Franklin, uh, the son of, of parents who loved the Lord, Calvinistic parents, uh, uh, a sister who loved the Lord. He was a, a close friend uh, to a uh, faithful evangelist, George Whitfield. And even as a faithful evangelist, uh, it appears that Whitfield, on a variety of occasions, shared the gospel with Franklin, had, had many conversations with um, Benjamin Franklin. Here's one thing he would even say. Um, this is what Benjamin Franklin would say about George Whitfield. He said, he used indeed sometimes to pray for my conversion, but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. Uh, and so back to that beginning quote, I mean, as you hear that, uh, you just notice this minimizing of truth, this, uh, this really, it would be more accurate to say, rejecting of the importance of right belief. Other places uh, he would write, a virtuous heretic shall be saved before a wicked Christian. That would be something that uh, Benjamin Franklin said. And, and to the topic of virtue, virtues were very important to him. In fact, you, you may know he was famously the author of, of this checklist of virtues that he had compiled. Uh, he listed out the 12 or really 13 of the virtues that he desired to perfect and so he wrote them out, had them in front of him, and he would log the virtues throughout the week when he would do something virtuous. He would check it off, and he would list them to see how he was growing in these virtues, only uh, to realize, here's a quote, I was surprised to find myself much fuller of faults than I had imagined. 
That was his analysis after listing these virtues. I think at one point in, in this whole process, he found himself doing quite well from his perspective on some of the virtues, and, and he grew um, quite prideful of, of successfully carrying out uh, 12 or so of these virtues, and then a friend pointed out that he was missing one virtue of humility. And so then he added that that's, that's how I um, understood that to be communicated in this. Uh, all of this was on this documentary that I watched, and, and it's just uh, all of this will matter today as we walk through Second John, because in regards to a right relationship with God, uh, I think Benjamin Franklin exhibits what so many believe today, uh, that it's not, a, it doesn't matter what we believe, uh, what matters is how we live um, and boy, with a statement like that, I'm convinced that our two-week study in Second John will serve us well in thinking about those issues. So you may already be there, but if you're not, I invite you to turn to that, that letter, Second John. Uh, it's towards the back of your New Testament. It's one of the shortest uh, books in the New Testament, and it quite possibly is the most neglected uh, book in, in the New Testament. And so I'm very excited to, to teach through the book. Uh, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so, we we're writing down some of the goals that we had in our ministry and um, things we'd like to do. And I remember one, one goal that I had was I desired to, to preach through a book of the Bible. I've, I've been preaching uh, places in Proverbs, preaching parables, preaching uh, different issues that, that are in Scripture, but I have not preach through an entire book of the Bible. And so in one of my more like ambitious moments, I chose not the smallest book in the New Testament, but, but the second, the smallest book of, of the New Testament. And um, so, well, and there's, there's some themes here that, that relate to that decision as well. I've long been so encouraged and benefited from First uh, John. Uh, and I find it to be just so pastoral and helpful regarding an issue that comes up so often in counseling teenagers and, and family members and, and friends, church members, and that's, that's the issue of assurance, assurance of salvation. And John is very clear in his purpose in 1 John. Uh, in fact, towards the end of that letter, in chapter 5, verse 13 of, of 1 John, uh, I'm preaching 2 John, but kind of beginning here talking about 1 John 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the purpose of that letter, the purpose of 1 John, was that they would know that they have eternal life for, for genuine believers to have assurance of their salvation. And so throughout that letter, he interacts with these three tests of the faith, evidence of the faith. These three tests have uh, often been referred to as the truth test, the moral test, the love test. Uh, genuine believers have, um, believe God's word. They have a, have a love for God's word, so they um, practice God's word. They, they, they believe the truth. That, that moral test, that a love for God is on display through a love, um, a, an obedience to God. Our love for God is on display through our obedience to him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So the truth test, this moral test, and, and then this love test in regards to just our, our love for God's people. Uh, if you've been loved by God, you're going to love others. Uh, and so 
these marks of genuine believers is this doctrinal test, a, a faithfulness to the scriptures, this, uh, this obedience to the scriptures and doing what God says, and in this love for God's people. These are all evidences of genuine believers. And uh, in a more condensed format, in fact, you'll see here in 13 verses, I mean, just one page likely in your Bible, under 300 words, you have all three of those tests of faith, and you even have a call to assurance as well, right here in, in 2 John. And so while short, it, it is rich, and, and we'll see those, those um, evidences of faith on display in this letter as we walk through it together. The same concerns that are going on in 1 John are concerns that are, going, that are being dealt with in, in the other two letters of John as well, 2nd and 3rd John. There's much to commend them for, but you'll see here even in, in verse 4, there, there's much to commend. I rejoiced greatly, 2nd John 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So, encouraging words in 2 John, but there's also this increasing concern in the mind of the apostle in regards to the threat of false teaching and the need to respond rightly to this threat. So in the first epistle, the false teachers, they had been exposed. Um, you know them as those who abandoned the faith, uh, that they had gone out from amongst them. And the reason that they had gone out was because they were never of them. So their false teaching demonstrated that they were not genuine believers. And so these false teachers existed, and, and John writes about them in First John. In fact, uh, he says, children, it's the last hour. And as, you, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's chapter two of 1 John. And so these, these false teachers are very much involved in this letter as well. If, if they went out from us in 1 John, look at what's happening in the next letter. Go to verse seven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So these false teachers, the, the same false teaching is going on in 1 John and in 2 John. So if they went out from us in 1 John, and now you're seeing this threat of they're trying to come into the church, infiltrate the church with this false teaching, and they are not to be received. They went out from us in 1 John, and here you see in verse 7 that um, they've gone out into the world, and they are they're teaching something else. We'll see that more next week as we walk through this second half of the letter. But who are they? Who are these false teachers? One of, one of the professors from the seminary I uh, attended, he, he pointed out that we actually, we don't have their writings. We don't have anything that they wrote. I, 
it's a blessing in my eyes, you know, but we, we don't have anything from these false teachers. But so what we know about them is really in these affirmations and denials that John provides. So really what we know about the false teachers is through John's rebuke of the false teachers. So as you see what they're rebuked for, you know what they taught. So these false teachers denied uh, the incarnation. They denied that Jesus was the Christ. They denied that he came in the flesh. They, they minimized sin. In fact, they professed to like, move on from sin that, um, to, into this pursuit of sinlessness, and, and they lacked love for the church. And so even those tests of faith that, that help provide assurance for genuine believers, all of those point to the false, they're a correction of what the false teachers were in fact teaching. So they went out in 1 John, and here in 2 John, they're, they're trying to come in, trying to teach this different teaching. They are not to be received. And so this is the occasion of this letter. John is writing in a strong way to, to guard the doctrine, to not receive these false teachers. And so with that as an intro, uh, it brings us to the beginning of the letter. Uh, it's a short letter, but it is a powerful, important divinely inspired text of scripture. I'll just read verse one for now. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So I'm curious as you read through verse one, do you have questions? Uh, I, I do, right? Who, who is the elder? And you're thinking, that, that's not my question. Uh, your question is, who is the elect lady? I mean, well, let's start with the first and, and seek to answer both. Uh, it's written from the elder to the elect lady. Uh, and in a sense, if we're gonna talk about the elder, I've already revealed my hand here. You, you've heard me refer to, to John um, often already. But uh, I'm convinced that John the apostle wrote this letter. Uh, the, the author does introduce himself. It doesn't say John. He says the elder. And um, so it's not as specific as maybe some of us would like, but, but it's, it's completely, it's absolutely identical to the, the introduction of third John as well. Look who writes the third letter. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So second John and third John are both written from this elder, the elder. And so I believe it's, it's pretty natural to see, it's pretty obvious even to see, even if you're looking at the two letters at the same time, that, that these letters are written by the same individual. Second and third John are written by the same man, the elder. So second and third John, same author. Then when you take second John, and, and what I'm doing right now is really simplified um, in, in regards to an argument for authorship here. But there are good reasons to see John the Apostle as the, the author. So second and third John appear to be the same author. Then when you move between second John and first John, they are so similar. I mean, even when I just talked about those three tests of faith, they're very similar themes in both letters, first John and second John. And so it's equally persuading, I believe, to see that the three epistles were all written by the same author. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Then you can move back and take 1st John and, and look at the Gospel of John 
and you see matching themes there, very clear evidence that those two books are written by the same individual. Um, all sorts of compelling reasons to see them as the same author. We know that 1 John was written by an eyewitness of the life and ministry of Christ. We know that the Gospel of John was written by an apostle. And uh, it seems clear that John, the apostle, is the author of the Gospel of John. And it's also obvious in my mind that he wrote these three letters. Uh, that's the testimony from within Scripture. Uh, but also it's the testimony from church history. Uh, there's strong evidence from church history. Even, even in the second century, you have a disciple of Polycarp who was a disciple of John. His name was Irenaeus, and he saw the gospel and all three letters as written by the apostle. And there's other individuals from church history that would have the same opinion. It's also interesting to note, even from church history, that, that, that John was the last remaining apostle. He's the only apostle that was not martyred for his faith. And so then you, you read about even him living in the region of Ephesus in Asia Minor late in his life prior to being exiled to the island of Patmos. And so even that history there kind of matches up well with these three letters being written when they were written in, in the last decade of the first century, sometime in the 90s. So it just seems that there's plenty of evidence to see John as the elder that's writing this letter. So John the Apostle was the author of the gospel, John the Apostle the author of these three epistles, and the author of the book of Revelation. And so think of who this is. Think of what we know about John. Uh, you know, along with his brother James, they were, one, they were 12 disciples, right? They were, he was one of the 12 disciples. And even amongst those 12 disciples, he's one of those three in that inner circle of, of James, Peter, and John. You think of some of what John observed as an eyewitness, as a disciple who, who walked with Christ, who, who sat under his teaching. I mean, he, he was there at the transfiguration. He was there seated next to Christ at the Last Supper. He's that beloved disciple who's seated right there with Christ. He's there at the, the crucifixion. He sees the empty tomb. He's there at the ascension. This is... John the Apostle. And so now, late in life, as an apostle, even as an elder in a church, so, so he still has the leadership in the life of the church, and, and he's exercising that, that um, oversight, so it's right for him to even refer to himself as the elder. Um, here he is, as the elder, writing a letter, uh, and we see that he's writing this letter to the elect lady. So here we go. It's time for question number two, which is probably question number one for many of you. Who is the elect lady? And this is an important question. I mean, interpreting scripture, you know, that's an important discipline. We, we want to get it right. Uh, and so I'm going to sum this up with two options. I think there's two, there's plenty more than two options that have been provided, but I think there's two main options we can consider. One, the elect lady is exactly that. Um, a lady, an individual that John is writing to who is chosen by God, so a believer, uh, the elect lady, an individual lady, or I, I think it's also feasible to see this as an individual congregation, a particular local church. I mean, there are certainly strengths to holding to this being um, literally written to uh, 
an individual lady. Strengths in holding that. But, but I actually, I've landed on this being a letter from John to a particular church. So I even kind of say that with a little bit of fear and trembling because um, what I'm advocating for is actually the more common view. But, but as I read through commentaries and, and some of those commentators that I ad- admire the most, that, I, that I've appreciated and benefit from, who I esteem, they would argue for uh, the opposite of what I'm saying. And so here's why, here's why I've landed where I have. There is precedent in the scriptures for referring to the church with this, this feminine with feminine images. I mean, if you even think, the church is the bride of Christ. Uh, you know, in 1 Peter, we just saw uh, the church referred to as the elect. You know, so the New Testament Christians are regularly referred to as the elect. And we haven't gotten here yet in our study of 1 Peter, but later, Peter is going to write, she who is in Babylon greets you. And that is a reference to a church, uh, that, that that is the she who is in Babylon is, is referring to a church. So there's precedent for, for referring to the church in this way. And even as you walk through 2 John, I mean, he keeps using this, this plural uh, you, you know, y'all kind of language here in the body of the letter. It doesn't seem like he's talking to one person, he's talking to a congregation. And let me just say my final reason really for for seeing this as a church. Just look at verse 13, the closing of the letter. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, it's not ridiculous to think that John closes the letter by saying, hey, your nieces and nephews say hello. I mean, that that could be what's going on. You know, maybe they're in the church that John's at, and he's saying, hey, the the children of your elect sister greet you. But I think the elect lady of verse 1 is referring to a church. I think the elect sister in verse 13 is referring to a church. And I think even John is part of the church in verse 13, that the children of your elect sister greet you. So feel free to, to talk to me about why you disagree with that or uh, if you have more questions. I don't think you'll see it in our statement of faith. I don't know where the other men, um, the elders in our church, where, where they, they land on this and maybe I'd be persuaded. I'm, with every fiber of my bones, convinced that John wrote this. Then I'm less, like, confident there on the elect lady. But I'm, I'm going to teach in light of seeing this as a local church that John's writing to. Okay, so that may have just lost a lot of you, and I apologize for that. So let's jump back in here. Um, well, even, you know what, I did want to just think of, we sing this so often, but the church is one foundation. Jason, Jason just led this a few weeks ago. But even verse one, think of, think of that hymn. The church is one foundation, is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his, his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. And we're used to, to this in regards to the church. Of, of thinking of these, these beautiful feminine images that, that speak to the beauty of Christ's bride. To the beauty of the church. Uh, and so I think John's writing to a church. So let's look at. Let's look at all the first four verses, in fact. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. In those four verses, 
Five times you saw a particular word. Um, did you catch it? You see that this, this important theme in, in the, on the mind of the Apostle John? It's that of truth. Four verses, five times he, he, he says, he speaks of truth. And the scripture certainly goes to great lengths to show the church uh, the necessary relationship that they have with truth. Um, if you even think 1 Timothy 3, reminding us that the church of the living God is the pillar and support of the truth, meaning we defend the truth, uh, but we also we, we make known the truth, like a, a pillar. Uh, we, there's a support. We support the truth, but we proclaim the truth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 reminds us that, that belief in the truth is necessary for salvation. Apart from that intro that I gave from, from Benjamin Franklin, 2 Thessalonians 2 says the exact opposite. Belief in the truth is necessary for salvation. And then we read in the scriptures that once we're saved, the truth is what sanctifies us. And in light of that salvation, based on the truth, we love the truth. We obey the truth. We proclaim the truth. We contend for the truth. Um, we're to dwell on truth. That's what's to be on our minds. Um, and then here, even in 2 John, we're seeing even the Christian life is one that is summarized, characterized as walking in the truth. The truth is of vital importance in the life of a Christian and absolutely vital in the life of the church. So John has a lot to say about truth and he has a lot to say about love as well. In fact, in these first four verses, you saw it twice. So truth five times, love twice, and he's gonna say more about love later in the letter. But here's what's important now. Uh, notice them together. We see truth and love together. In fact, truth and love belong together. Uh, that observation is instructive just in itself because that's something that is often denied today. Many assume that, that truth and love are actually like adversaries. They, they don't work well together. Uh, but thinking biblically, we know that is opposite of the truth. We're to speak the truth in love. Um, the most loving thing we can do is to speak truthfully. So it's ironic that when we speak the truth, when we take a stand for the truth, that is often described by the world as being unloving. But love without truth is not Christian love. And so truth and love indeed belong together. Truth and love belong together. So that's why you see them together in this letter. Uh, verse one, uh, whom I love in the truth. Uh, and again, verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with those in truth and love. Truth and love belong together. And this, this brings my mind to uh, a quote uh, that I heard that I've read this past year that has stuck with me. I found it so helpful. There's someone who wrote uh, this statement. Every virtue needs companions. And so I've shared this quote with quite a few of you. It's been on my mind. I find it fascinating. I find it helpful. And I think it's actually particularly appropriate here in 2 John. Every virtue needs companions. That quote comes from Dale Ralph Davis. He wrote a commentary on 2 Samuel where he's interacting with this individual in, in, in chapter 13 who acts in a prudent way. I mean, it's virtuous. He's prudent. But what he's doing is uh, lacks integrity. And so 
what he was doing was wrong. It was prudent, but it lacked integrity. And so the commentator says, every virtue needs companions. And so I just think of how that applies here in Second John. Truth and love ought to be companions. Um, it's not hard to think of examples where, where one was emphasized at the expense of the other, and so it ends up neither being, you know, it's a half-truth, and it's not loving, you know. Truth needs love, love needs truth. I, I think back to my time at FSU, I remember I'd go to class and then walk through the student union, which I'm pretty sure is different now, but anyway, when I walked through the union, there was, there was often somebody who was standing in a exalted place. He's standing up above everyone else and he's throwing out truth bombs at people. He's calling them to repent, but he was doing it in a very unloving way. In fact, he was acting kind of omniscient, like he knew what what people were thinking, what they were doing, and and he'd accuse people of certain things, and he'd say things that were certainly not loving, and I don't think they were actually helpful, but he was saying truth at the same time that he was saying these unloving things, and I just always felt like, man, there's something missing here. This, 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 uh, this guy's trying to evangelize the lost by saying truth, but he's not doing it in a loving way. And so I don't think he was being helpful because it was truth without love. But man, we can think of all sorts of examples of the opposite as well, right? Where you can think of, of the abandonment of truth at the expense or really at, in the appearance of love. I mean, we're told nowadays all the time that what the loving thing to do is to tolerate, is to accept, is to agree, is to celebrate, is to um, advocate, in, you know, for, for sinful behavior, for sinful living. And so whether it's sexual sin, whether it's biblical marriage, whether it's the issue of sanctity of life, whether it's... Um, whether it's even sinful partiality, on and on we could go, we know that when we downplay the truth, when we avoid the truth, when we distort the truth, we are not being loving. It's not the loving thing to do to to, uh, deny truth. Why? Because love and truth belong together. And John demonstrates that here in 2 John. I've already read two occasions where, where he puts those two words together. He got this. He understood this. So he's teaching this. But remember, John is the elder that we're talking about here at this point. You know, he's this seasoned, mature, godly man. And I say that to point out this was not always the case for John. John aged well. Um, That's actually something I, Pastor MacArthur wrote this in his 12 Ordinary Men about, about, about John. And I just thought that was such a helpful statement. John aged well. I mean, the apostle of love appears to have gravitated to truth more naturally. Um, so if you walk through the life of John, you see this quest for truth that consumed him. In fact, well, go with me to the Gospel of John. Turn to chapter one. And what we're trying to do here, we're saying John gets that truth and love belong together. So this must have obviously always been at play in his life. No, no, no. This is something that he grew in. So he, he may have naturally gravitated to truth. Uh, in chapter one of John, we have to remember that he was a disciple of John the Baptist uh, prior to following Christ. Look at 
Look at verses 35 through 37. The next day again, John, this is John the Baptist, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. So so John, the son of Zebedee, has been with John the Baptist. And then when John the Baptist sees Christ and proclaims him, behold, the Lamb of God. John, the son of Zebedee, in his quest for truth, it's not that he's disloyal to the Baptist, it's that he is following the Lamb of God. This is the way, the truth, and the life. This is who John is going to be with. And so John goes with Christ. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John was in pursuit of truth. Well, go to the left a little bit in your Bibles. Go to Luke chapter 9. John loved truth from an early point in his um, walk with Christ. Luke 9, 51 through 56. Almost humorous what, what goes on here in these verses. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, as Christ, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell, uh, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. I mean, what's happening here? John loves truth. John loves Christ. And when, when, they, when, they are, when Jesus is not received here in Samaria, uh, the Samaritans do not receive him. And John's thought is, hey, you want me to like send fire down from heaven to destroy these guys? You know, because they're not thinking rightly. They don't get the truth. They just did not receive you. And Jesus rebukes them for it. This, this apostle of love was, was uh, gravitated towards truth. So what, what happens then in, in the life of, of John to help him grow in this way of seeing truth and love together? Well, I think summarized in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4. Turn there, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 John 4, 7 through 11 says, Beloved, 1 John 4, 7 through 11, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, there it is right there in verse 11. This, John loves truth. But John has been the object of God's love God first loved him. Uh, And if you have been loved by God, beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So if you're like John in the early years where you're zealous for truth, 
You know, you're gifted at saying hard things. You're skilled with just saying it like it is, being blunt, comfortable, just with truth bombs. Um, that virtue needs a companion. It is, it is a virtue. It needs a companion, though, and that companion is love. Conversely, if you're thoughtful and you're careful with your words, you're mindful of your audience, you're hesitant to say hard things because you think of what the response might be, and you have this desire for, for winsome deliveries, that virtue needs a companion. It's truth. You know, at its, at its worst, it's fear of man. Really what we need to be is fearing God. We want to say the truth and we need to say it in love. And so John's life is one of growth in that. His teaching modeled that. In fact, he calls for love for one another. And then also, when someone proclaims a false teaching, he calls that what it is as well. He calls it um, wicked ways, uh, teaching of the Antichrist. They're not to be welcomed. John modeled both truth and love. So, Back to, back to Second John. John, this, this uh, apostle of love, was also this apostle that, that understood that truth and love belong together. In fact, truth is what unites us to one another. Look at the end of verse one. So it's John to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. There's a love that John has for this church and it's in truth and it's not just him. Everyone who knows the truth um, has this love as well for this particular church. Also, all who know the truth. What a great description of Christians. Christians are those who know the truth. You know, a Christian knows God. A Christian is known by God. Um, right belief indeed is essential for salvation. So those who know the truth have been loved by God, and so they love one another. Uh, I love in the truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth. So that's such a great demonstration even of the love test that we read about in 1 John. Uh, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Second John is saying, whom I love in the truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Why do they have a love for one another? Because of the truth that abides in them. So the love that we have, the unity that we have as believers, the communion that we participate in together, it's all due to the truth that we share together. Uh, turn back in First Peter, we we're there in First Peter 2 when, uh, in our series there. But look, look at First Peter chapter 2. I think you see this shared truth that is confessed amongst believers. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Here is the shared truth that, that unites us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the shared truth. They're a people of God's own possession. They're a holy nation. They're this chosen race. 
Uh, They once were not a people, now they are God's people. They have received mercy, and so they, they are united together, those who are the objects of God's mercy. The church shares this reality. The truth abides in the church, we're told in, in 2 John. The, the love that we have for one another is because of the truth, and that truth actually abides in us and will be with us forever. That's the end of verse two. The truth abides in us. We have the truth of the word of God. Colossians 3, we're told, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. One more cross-reference real quick, just to point out that we have the truth of the word of God. Turn back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. John 14, 15 through 17 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So when we think of this reality in Second John of the truth abiding in us, You know, we have the word of God, the word of truth. We have the truth, and we're to let it uh, dwell in us richly. Then even in John 14, we're reminded as believers, we have the Holy Spirit indwelt within us. The truth abides in us, And, and that truth that abides in us is what unites us with other believers. It's what explains the love that we have for one another because the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. Well, let's now look at this last verse in the intro uh, and we'll conclude with that. Verse three, 2 John verse three says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Christian letters usually began with a Christian greeting. And so here is this Christian greeting. It's often grace and peace. Here in 2 John, it's grace, mercy, and peace. And this ordinary greeting teaches something extraordinary. You know, we know from Sunday school, from vacation Bible school, this simple, helpful understanding of grace and mercy. You know, if grace is God giving us what we don't deserve, you know, this gift of eternal life. And mercy is not getting what we do deserve, you know, condemnation, um, separation from God. We know that the fruit of receiving then that grace and mercy is peace. Peace with God. When we turn to Christ, when we trust in him for salvation, we are at peace with God. Our sins are forgiven. We're granted eternal life. We're no longer condemned. We're counted righteous in Christ. We're brought into God's family. We are now in a right relationship with him because we are now at peace with him. But at the beginning of our lesson, I said that John refers to assurance in this letter. I believe there's assurance on display in verse three. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. 
So, so the way that, that he, he uses this, this verb is to show this is a reality for those who know the truth. Those who know the truth have grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. That is an assurance. The peace of God is assured in the life of a believer. And who does this come from? Well, it comes from God alone. Grace, mercy, and peace are from God. And so you read in verse three, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. The false teachers, they deny that Jesus was the Christ. And this greeting reminds us the false teacher's message was erroneous. It was, um, it was, it was error and it ought not be received. This greeting reminds the church of the deity of Christ, the equality shared between the Father and the Son. Peace comes from God alone. Well, you see here in verse three, peace comes from God the Father, and peace comes from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. So what a tremendous blessing it is for those who are in the truth to be in a right relationship with God. I mean, what, what then did that intro even have to do with, with 2 John when I said, I think 2 John is gonna help us? Think about what we're seeing in 2 John. What we believe matters. That statement about, uh, it's not as much about what we believe, but how we live is so far from the truth because what we believe matters. But it's also wrong to see those two issues completely unrelated. What we believe matters, but how we live gives evidence to what we believe. When we are saved, when we trust in Christ by responding rightly to the truth, we are brought into God's family. And, and the fruit of that work is um, growth in godliness. We grow to become more like Christ. Uh, how we live gives evidence to the fact that we have been saved. And so, so the apostle writes so helpfully here in regards to this because he's gonna correct the false teaching and tell them to reject the false teaching, but he reminds them of the truth that they know already, that, that, that Jesus is God, that Jesus came in the flesh, and that those who have been saved can know that they have been saved. They can know they have eternal life because of these evidences of faith. And John refers to them again here in 2 John as well love for God's word, a love for God's people, and a love for God demonstrated through obedience. So we'll continue next week with, with the rest of the letter. In fact, we'll just verse four is where we will begin. He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. May that be our prayer that our church would be characterized by those who are walking in the truth, those who are trusting in Christ alone for the salvation and, and that indwelt by the Holy Spirit that is working in us that we would be walking in the truth. Um, look forward to, to, to thinking more on this next time. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you um, for this time together. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the message of truth that, that you who are holy sent your son to die in our place because we were dead in our sin without hope. And you sent your son to die 
to pay for our sins so that we could be reconciled to you, so that when we trust in Christ, our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness is applied on our behalf so we can be in a right relationship with you. We praise you for that truth. May we as a church proclaim that truth. May we defend that truth. And uh, may we do that um, in love. We thank you for this time together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.